0: Hey, everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our substack. You'll find a link in the description.
1: If a venture diligence cycle, especially for early stage, is like around narrative, camaraderie, do we like the market, etc., private equity is like a colonoscopy, right? Like you're looking at
0: every
1: <laughs> of the business at like the most detailed, detailed level possible. And so there's there's different work streams and there's different tracks, right? So like you'll have to get a quality of earnings commissioned, right? The private equity firm wants to make sure that like the numbers that you have put through are actually real numbers, right? It's not just looking at your tax returns, it's actually looking at the quality of the earnings that are coming out, right? There's customer diligence, there's employee diligence, there's infrastructure diligence, right? There's legal due diligence, there's financial due diligence. So every element of having your books buttoned up, having your company buttoned up, et cetera, um, is, is its own work stream and is is its own process.
0: Welcome to media empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top tier podcasters, newsletter, authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empires or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode, grab your headphones and let's dive in. Our guest today is Ramin Sheth. Ramin, by way of introduction, you invest in in tech businesses, but you like to run service businesses. Is is, is that? And you incubate service businesses. Yeah. Is that right? Why don't you unpack why that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a little bit by accident. Um, you know, I, I used to operate in startups quite a bit in mid kind of twenty fifteen ish time frame. Um, our last startup got Aqua hired. And as we got Aqua hired and I started looking at a next set of ideas, I just got really infatuated and interested in service-based businesses. Um, they were the complete opposite of venture-backed startups. You didn't have to raise a ton of capital to get an idea off the ground. You didn't have a bunch of product market fit risk. There was always a question of how big could those businesses be, uh, but there was a pretty straight linear shot that those businesses could be at least you know, a single or a double. And so... This, this business that I've been running for the last four years, we've, we've bootstrapped it to over 60 million in revenue. Uh, we brought in private equity last year. Um, and it turns out actually, you know, my eyes have been opened as to how large services businesses can actually end up being. And so it's been a ton of fun. And so by day, you know, operate a service business and, and kind of am held to the, to the throngs of profitability and cash flow and kind of all of these things that have become in vogue in tech now that, that weren't over the last 10 years. But investing in tech and investing in startups is a ton of fun because it it really paints the appetite for how big you know can businesses really be. So I, I really like operating actually in both spaces because it it uses kind of the left and right right sides of your brain.
0: You were ahead of your time. <laughs> I feel like Silicon Valley is uh, is is catching up to you now. Uh, you know uh, when seeing the challenges of of raising so much money and venture et cetera. Um, in one of our earlier episodes, Sean talked about. Um, service businesses as well, and what um, sort of the, the boon in AI could, could could mean for them. Sean, do you want to unpack some of your interest there?
2: Definitely. And Romain, you probably will have some interesting insights on this, given the world that you live in and the intersection there. The thing that AI unlocks for us is the ability to scale things that previously weren't quite able to be done by computers. We were able to generate long-form, coherent written text, We can generate audio. We can transcribe podcasts. There's all types of crazy things that we can now do. We have access to intelligence. But a lot of these things in services businesses are just part of it. You cannot just full-on replace management consulting, right? If you wanted to replace, you know, I run a coaching business, you can't just full-on replace the full coach because so much of what the customer is paying for is that human doing something. Yet, there does seem to be a big opportunity to... Consolidate some set of key activities, and perhaps that brings scale to a consolidated organization, so that the actual end service providers, the sort of people doing the real human work, can be more effective more effective, more efficient, and that there is some agglomeration effect um, when you actually merge those things together.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally right. So, <laughs> I, I spent a couple of years at McKinsey doing consulting, and it always humors me when you when you go on Twitter and and kind of the the trope is always you know. What's the value of bringing a consulting firm into an organization? These businesses don't make any sense, et cetera. These businesses are arguably the best businesses in the world, right? They print tens of billions of dollars, literally not exaggerating, of cash flow. And if you've spent any time inside a consulting business, what you realize is you're exactly right, Sean. You're not getting paid just for the end product or the end deliverable itself. You're getting paid for the human touch. So what starts to happen in a world in which you have AI, and not not only AI, like we should really probably talk about offshore labor as well. Like there's been a there's been a class of consulting firms that have used offshore labor really, really well. And now that COVID has happened and the, the whole labor force of the world has changed, I think a lot of mainstream organizations are seeing the benefit and the value of labor arbitrage. It's pretty amazing, I think, when you look at the labor force now of what can both AI and technology do in terms of increasing efficiency, output, scale, et cetera, but then also integrating offshore labor into your teams, right? Offshore labor was often looked at as how do you just farm out the lowest cost, most transactional work. But if you actually start thinking from first principles of how you can construct these teams with both offshore and onshore, that plus AI, it's it's actually pretty unbelievable what you can do in businesses now. I would actually argue there's a lot of service businesses, um, especially ones that are oriented around labor, like staffing is a great example. A lot of these businesses would not be able to operate if you just had them on a pure 100% us onshore based model with no technology right so a lot of these services services businesses actually end up being highly highly cash flow generative businesses but they can only do so if they're using ai and they're using offshore labor so it's it's a super interesting time to be
2: to be looking at both of these curves and blending them in it does feel like we're entering an era where companies are operating especially remote companies on some idea of you know remote mixed intelligence is this insight or this activity getting conducted by somebody onshore, somebody remote or AI. And in a lot of cases, companies like scale, for example, give you one API you can hit to send data into them. And they don't even tell you whether or not a human or an AI was the one that, you know, did this particular task. And so we're sort of in this like blended intelligence world where if you're conducting your company in the right way, you know, you're sort of using all all types.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally right. I I don't think the, I think if you asked me five years ago, <clears throat> I'm sure there's way more sophisticated people than I on on this, but I would not have thought that AI would have come for all the knowledge workers before it would have come for all the blue collar workers, right? Um I would have thought that it would have accelerated and augmented knowledge work significantly. but there's a lot of knowledge work now that when you actually unbundle, you know you don't need a hundred thousand dollars resource in San Francisco doing that work. like bottom line, you just don't, right? And a lot of these business models are completely untenable if that's the cost of labor. But if you bring the cost of labor down or you augment it or you rethink through the team construct in a first principles way, you know, these businesses can be run by less and less people. They can be highly, highly cash flow generative. Um, and then they can be really interesting. They can be really interesting because you start to have the types of businesses where I think you're going to start seeing more and more teams of, you know, five, 10, 15, creating businesses that are going to make millions of dollars a year for owners um and you'll have businesses that kind of cap out at that level and people can kind of choose that you know they're making incredible income and they want to live you know life the way they want to live it or i think you're going to start having teams that are not actually that much bigger like 50 to 100 that end up rolling up and scaling to be you know matching what it would have taken a thousand people to do right 10 15 years ago so it's going to be it's going to be really interesting i i think the whole concept of cash flow being in vogue profitability be, being in vogue in Silicon Valley right now couldn't have actually happened at a better time for founders, because I think what it's also reinforcing and rewiring a lot of founder psychology around is you can build great businesses without needing a ton of venture capital. And quite candidly, I think a lot of founders are going to be better off building those types of businesses and getting economic value out of it for
2: themselves. Totally. It feels like there's, we're, we're, in terms of software, we're in the, software as tool, not software as technology phase, right. you know, historically software was a thing that required this really expensive, hard to, to train person to do, but that was largely because the costs of producing technology and the tools were really bad. And so it really was technology. And now it feels like we're, we're down the cost curve and the ease of use curve enough that we're, you know, they're like, for example, I, I have a team of engineers in Vietnam that are incredible at building web apps. Yet I wouldn't trust them to, for example, push the limit on training a neural network. And so a lot of the things that there's a lot of these good cash flow generating lifestyle businesses or or even re- relatively substantially sized businesses. They're they're not quite pushing the frontiers of technology. They're deploying the the, the sort of gains in um, ease of use and, and cost that that we've sort of been working towards for the last twenty years. And that's a really exciting place to be, as you said, as a, as a founder. Uh, to be able to build one of those types of cash flow businesses because you're really making use of the trillion dollars that has been invested in this era over the last 20 years
1: i I also think it's interesting what you just said because i think that's that's the typical kind of thought process today around using international labor right Is is i'm comfortable doing kind of xyz tasks but maybe not a b and c task what i'm really curious on is if you fast forward that 10 15 years does that same paradigm exist Right. So I actually think that paradigm will completely start to shift and you'll just fundamentally have a different, you know, economic underlying for labor worldwide. Right. And you'll start to have a world where in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, you'll be using some of these countries and you will just say, you know what, from the ground up, it makes sense to be building a team overseas because the labor, the labor cost is just so fundamentally different and there's not the skills gap. Like right now, there's still a skills gap, but I think that that skills gap is only going to, um, only going to become smaller and smaller over a period of time.
0: Ramin, how should we think about the uh, competition between cheap labor and, uh, I guess, AI in, in the sense that you know, for example, one of my best buds runs Athena, the executive assistant company that leverages um, labor in the Philippines. And some people say, "Hey, oh, they'll be able to just incorporate all the best tools, et, et cetera. Whereas other people say, "Hey, no, actually, um, you know, assistance built from the ground up, you know, kind of AI first companies." will will win over time. How should we think about the, the, the challenges there? Not just for that example company, but other types of companies as well.
1: Yeah, I think as AI agents get really good, it actually becomes an interesting question. I think the challenge for AI replacing offshore completely is you're already getting the cost to be so low, right? That the customization and kind of the bells and whistles around the edges more than justifies the cost. So for example, today, if someone said, hey, I could replace your, you know, all your kind of transactional uh, functions on a backend side, purely through AI, right? And let's say it was 20% cheaper, right? Or, or 30% better. It's not moving the needle enough for me to say, I want to go to a completely human-free, you know, kind of zone, right? Whereas if I have somebody that I can actually go to, they can customize, you know, and they, they, they know exactly my use cases, my pieces, et cetera, there's still a ton of value there. So I, I think the real arbitrage ultimately... It's not gonna be an either or. I don't think it's gonna be, you just build like an AI based labor force and that's it. I think it's gonna be, you actually get cost of labor down significantly and it's backed and powered by AI. And then you're just gonna have like 10X the amount of productivity, 20X the amount of productivity. And as a business owner, you're gonna be more than willing to pay. I would be more than willing to pay for that type of customization, et cetera, handholding, white glove service, et cetera. Because on the opposite side of that curve, the value generation should be so significant, right? That it it doesn't even it doesn't even pale or compare right to saying hey let me let me take out an extra fifteen percent of cost for convenience the value generation on the other side of the curve should be so significant so I I think the best companies in labor generally are going to be the ones that are figuring out how do we actually blend Sean you used a really good framing right basically blending like this hybrid intelligence idea right how do we take both the best of offshore and the best of of uh, AI right for productivity gains et cetera? And it it just dramatically changes the impact of a labor force.
0: What is your request for startups as it relates to offshore labor? Where are the opportunities?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I have a request for startup in terms of offshore labor specifically, but if we go on this AI trend, um, I do have one request for startup, which is basically somebody builds an automation consulting firm, right? And this this is probably not venture-backed. I think it's something you can make a lot of money on. So the way that I think about this is you know, in tech, it's very vogue to talk about AI, right? And and I'd say in mainstream society, it's vogue to talk about AI at kind of a hundred thousand foot level. But in terms of actually understanding how do you incorporate AI into your business, right? Night and day between the startups that I talk to and the mainstream businesses that I talk to, right? Um, There are millions of small businesses that have no clue when it comes to AI, right? And just like how data scientists became a really common role, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think we're going to start to see Digital operations, automation officers, et cetera, become this new role, right? So one thing that I would think about, especially if I understood this space and I was looking, you know, kind of to build a cash flow business, right? In the spirit of what we were just talking about, I'd build a consulting firm that does something very simple. It has three components. One is it does diagnosis. So I'd go in and I would assess for companies how do your workflows work? How are they set up today? What automations, what AI tools could boost your productivity the the biggest challenge typically in a consulting firm selling a service is people see no ROI, right? Nobody wants you to come in, give them the strategy, et cetera, and pay a bunch of money for that. The best part of a service like this is it provides super tangible value, right? You can tangibly show what is the ROI of productivity gains, et cetera, right? So first thing would be diagnosis. Second thing would be build and implement. So this is where the vast majority of the, the, the value layer would actually sit, right? To so do the work, to actually build out all the automations create the standard operating procedures, you know, onboard them onto tools like Zapier, et cetera, any other AI tools, et cetera, right? And then the last piece, which I think could be really exciting and interesting from a business model perspective, is just maintenance, right? So a monthly fee for service and maintenance. Automations are gonna break, they're gonna need to be updated, right, as the business changes, et cetera. And so I think you can actually end up being a managed service provider, right, for companies around this AI automation piece. You can use the wedge as let me come in and help you diagnose and actually build but then on the back end side right you can actually end up just being a managed service provider or basically a bpo this is like a 2.0 bpo right for automation and ai specifically i think you can use a ton of offshore labor here right at the back end side because offshore labor can maintain these automations or rebuild these automations super cheaply um and i think underneath the surface if you actually did this at scale let's say you did this for you know thousands odd companies or so i think you end up building one of the most valuable toolkits that are out there, right? Like you have this playbook on how to develop and templatize best-in-class operations for SMBs. And that can go in any direction. You can go deeper by function, like sales, marketing, finance, et cetera. You can go deeper by vertical, by company size, et cetera. But I I think somebody that has a good consulting mindset that understands AI and offshore labor could make a really, really attractive um, company on the backs of of just digital operations.
2: There's, There's two things that this brings to mind over the last 10 years big tech has generated like a trillion dollars in market cap under the banner of digital transformation and it seems like what you're describing is digital transformation for everybody else it's like the the big the oracles of the world you know larry is is now the like fifth richest man in the world or something insane uh, as of as of this week you know the, the 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 big tech organization or the big enterprise organizations have Already done this, and now we're saying, "Hey, let's let's take it to everybody." Um, it's really interesting. It, it reminds me somewhat of the boom, maybe in the '90s and the t- 2000s, around managed service providers for telecom equipment. You know, you had to have somebody come in and run your networking equipment, run your internal, run your email. Right, this was before Gmail had really taken over that and, and consolidated that whole space. How do you, how, how do you think you would bill? for this type of business, right? Like you mentioned three phases. Do you have a different billing model for each sort of, how do you think about the financial component? Yeah,
1: so I think two things. So one, to take a step back, I think the way you framed it is exactly right, right? That's actually exactly where my mind goes to, is this, is this legion of MSPs in kind of the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, not only you know did, so big tech, yes, created a bunch of market cap by actually creating the disruptive technology like AWS on and so forth to digitize for everyone but you have legions of consulting firms today that are still implementing, you know, SAP transformations, AW, I mean, they're not even at what big tech did, right?
2: It's two layers before that of transforming these companies and their systems. On on that point, Deloitte Deloitte does 2 billion a year in revenue, just implementing SAP, and they do another 2 billion in revenue per year, implementing Oracle.
1: That's exactly right, right?
2: So it it gives
1: you the scale and the size of just how significant the opportunity is, right? In helping in helping companies transform. In my in my last years at McKinsey, one of the fastest growing business units was digital transformation. Period, right? It was helping companies think through what what's the technology. Uh, it was doing a lot of work around what they called capability building, right? So basically, change management and just incorporating that actual knowledge in the company itself so the company can run itself so i I would think about it on two fronts one is the first part of it i would think about it as just normal consulting right um and i think you could think of it as a paid for service or eventually if it's giving you enough scale uh, or enough conversion on the managed services side because that's really the more attractive part of the business you could just throw it in for free right free diagnostic right there's no friction here we're going to help you learn we're going to help you get better etc but then once we get you hooked on, on the fact that there is so much value here, to actually do the build, to actually do the maintenance, that's where our service comes in, right? And I think you should be able to tie it pretty cleanly um, you know, to actual ROI and our uh, actual impact. There's a model in consulting that works really well, which is beyond just the recurring revenue model or the maintenance model. Uh, you could have what's called a gain share model, right? And so if you can tie pretty clearly and effectively that X level of productivity is going to come out right, you can actually take a gain of that. So you could take 10% of that, 20% of that, et cetera. It's typically a difficult model to execute against because the argument always is, you know, what actually changed the productivity, right? Was it the automations? Was it, you know, the people, et cetera? But I think that's a way that you could actually go significantly higher on the value curve, right? And you're you're basically pricing more towards the value, right? But I would price in a pretty, I would try to keep it actually pretty plain vanilla and and flat managed services fee, right? It would be a recurring revenue model, right? At a healthy gross margin. And there would always be enough work. My, my hypothesis would be there would be enough work that would be coming and there'd be enough value for the business that the business would basically say, you know what, we want to use somebody that knows exactly what they're doing. We don't want to go in and mess things around because the amount of business value that's getting created for us is so significant. If it's, if it's a reasonable price and we could kind of eat it, right, we'll just treat it as it's a, you know, off, it's a, it's an outsourced service provider. And I think the good thing is in Main Street businesses, a lot of businesses are completely used to that, right? Like most SMBs are not, they're not managing their internal IT. They're using agencies for things like marketing, right? They're using law firms. They're using all sorts of outsourced providers because at that size of business, it just by definition doesn't make sense to have all that in-house expertise,
2: right? Do you, do you think that you choose a specific type of business, a category? Do you, do you tackle bakeries? Um, that's probably an awful example. Do you tackle, you know, small, long tail law firms? Yeah. How do you yeah. think you, you take that thing to market? Totally. So I wouldn't go after
1: SMBs, like traditional SMBs. I think it's a really difficult sales cycle. It's really painful. Um, most SMBs don't make a lot of money. I would go after, I would use private equity as a channel partner. Every private equity firm is obsessed with their portfolio companies becoming hyper-efficient. Private equity has a very simple playbook, right? They come in, they they strip a bunch of cost, right? Ideally they organically grow, and they buy companies and slap them on with MA. I think this is the perfect type of solution to show how you can strip you know, extra costs, especially in highly commoditized spaces, right? The if you're saving hundred bips, right, in a highly commoditized at-scale ba- um, space. Right. You're generating a ton of extra cash flow to the bottom line, and you're going to increase the multiple, right? So I'd go to every private equity firm and basically be like, how do we roll this out to every single one of your portfolio companies? We can give you volume-based pricing, right, et cetera, because we're getting you know mass amount of business, and it should be tied to a
2: very specific uh, value creation lever. That would be my, my go-to-market. The thing I think is genius about that, Ramin, is that the, the one thing that would prevent a business like this from finding real success with customers is just inertia and the lack of that internal will to change. You know, leaders might get really motivated one weekend. They they spent time having a great conversation on their vacation with somebody that like got them pumped. But then they get back to the office. They start implementing change. Their employees start complaining at them saying, oh, I don't like this. Are you really going to fire Sally? Sally's been here for 15 yep. years. And they they sort of lose the, the, the will to actually implement the changes that they were paying for. Yep. But private equity firms are at some level, the motive force for, you know, disruptive organizational change within our economy. They come in and they say, we don't have any of the legacy emotional constraints here that, that weigh down owners. And, and weigh down is maybe the, the wrong word that, that sort of, I don't know, motivate owners or, or whatever else. But Occupy owners, yeah. Occupy mindshare owners, right? Yeah, Thank and you. they're but they're willing to come in and, and make those changes. So that channel seems like a perfect fit if you actually are implementing potentially sweeping organizational change. I think you have to go where the incentives
1: are, right? So ultimately, if the incentive from the investor side is I want to make money on my investment and there's a handful of levers at which I can do it, you know, you ideally want to go to the levers that are the least amount of effort and the highest amount of bang for buck, right? I think the good news and the interesting thing about something like this also is it doesn't even have to be dressed up as, hey, let's have this come in and fire Sally. I think the dress up is actually... You know how can we have Sally be her best self, right? Like how can we actually use AI not just in a cost basis type way, but also in a generative way, where we're having more and more of our people who have this institutional knowledge, who have this industry expertise, et cetera, right? And actually leveraging them to go create higher value for the organization, as opposed to the work that you know everybody hates doing. Like we all hate doing in our jobs, right? Like the admin tactical stuff that just has to get done, um, that's not super high value, that typically gets associated with things like burnout, retention, churn, you know, etc., right? So I, I I think private equity would be the would be the interesting channel partner here though for for these types of businesses. You're also then getting I think to a class of business where you know this is going to make enough impact. So the problem at the bakery or the problem at kind of the small corner store is how do you make the economics work, right? Let's say you're going to charge 10 grand a month, 20 grand a month or so, you know, saving 120 grand to 240 grand a year, the likelihood of that happening is really, really low. If you're going to middle market private equity and these businesses are doing, you know, hundred million in revenue, 10 million in profit or so, and you can shave off a half million bucks, a million bucks, like that's that's really meaningful. Um, and you can justify charging, you know, a quarter million bucks for it, right? And and you can you can have a really good scale to tie towards that this value is actually going to come out. And so the private equity firm or the company doesn't have to feel like, you know, we're paying for this service and we're not actually getting the gains. I think if you do this service well, you should actually see the gains in terms of technology consolidation, labor consolidation, you know, et cetera, relatively, relatively quickly.
0: Fascinating. I, I want to shift to your, your other idea, uh, Ramin, which is uh, also on brand for this conversation, Carta for um, non-venture uh, companies. Wh- wh- why yeah. do you uh, unpack that idea and why you're so excited about it?
1: Yeah, so Cardo was a great idea when it came about, right? Now, obviously you have like Pulley, Angel List, you have a whole bunch of folks competing in the space, but the premise was really simple, right? It was tooling for venture backed startups was really complicated, right? So if you issued chairs or you had to manage your cap table, you just had tons of people that had to be involved. You had lawyers, you had VCs, you had employees, everything had to be done manually. It was super error prone. Um, especially because of the frequency at which it had to be updated, right? New employees would come in, old employees would leave, fundraising rounds would happen, et cetera. A lot of people, you know, when Cardo was coming up, now it's it's kind of vaunted as the success story, but you know, eight, eight to ten years ago when Cardo was trying to raise money, it's pretty famously documented that they really struggled in raising money. Um, because most people looked at it as just this very simple cap table tool and a very small tan, right? But the cap table and the 409A business were really a wedge into a much bigger and much more dynamic problem, which was serving as a system of record or truth for asset ownership. Right. And so the result now is you have this business that has hundreds of millions in ARR, you know, I think 15 to 20,000 companies on the platform, you know, over a million stakeholders on the platform. You've got this really, really meaty, juicy source of truth, basically, basically a, a meaty startup registry of sorts, right? Like the ownership table of the startup industry. I think there's a potentially even bigger ship brewing, right, on the main street side. So you apply the same exact idea, but you do it for profit sharing businesses. So the tooling of Carta today doesn't make any sense for a business that's doing profit sharing, right? Options, equity, et cetera, these aren't really the right instruments. They're not the right tools, right, for main street businesses. So what I think would be really interesting is you develop simple tooling uh, for profit sharing for businesses, right? You allow them to customize their plan, adapt it to their conditions, you know, their growth, right? Bonus pools, distribution philosophies, uh, tenure-based goals, performance-based goals, right? In in startups, when we think about equity, it's typically, you know, I think structure is starting to come in now, but it's it's usually just time-based vesting. In private equity or in main street businesses, vesting is completely different. It's typically based on performance goals, right? And so there's way more adaptation that actually has to take place for these bonus plans, incentive plans in Main Street businesses. I think employees love this because there's transparency, predictability, it's super easy to consume. Employers love it because there's consistency, it's really easy to manage and it's predictable. But I think most importantly, similar to Carta, you end up having a really, really powerful corpus uh, of data that sits underneath, right? So if you think about, you know, valuations for Main Street businesses, benchmarking, uh, metrics, et cetera, right? it's real, you know, deeper management and reporting, et cetera. It's really difficult to do that today with Main Street businesses. And I think you can actually unlock that significantly if you have this kind of basic tooling that serves as a layer on top. Carta had tried something and I think they're still trying it called Carta X, right, which the end vision was, we have all this data and so we can unlock liquidity in private markets. Um, and TBD, if it, if it ever works, or if they get it to work. I think on the Main Street business side, that's like, a, that's a, that's a, a treasure trove of data, right? You end up having brokers come out ad nauseum, people that wanna buy businesses come out ad nauseum. So I, I, like this, I like this idea and this tool on the main street businesses side. I think at just the tooling level alone, much bigger market can be much more interesting, much more complicated, right? Because there's a lot more customization that's required. And I think the underlying data set ends up actually being a lot more attractive as well. So I, I think if somebody's building, Carta but for mainstream businesses and, and kind of profit sharing oriented I'd, I'd be pretty interested in
2: taking a look at that do you think you start with profit sharing with employees or with external owners it's a good
1: question i i kind of think the go to market is the same here which is going after private equity firms again right so i think carta did a really good job of that of figuring out that hey let's not convince company by company but let's go to the you know eight law firms in silicon valley that does everybody's cap tables Right and um, and make sure that VCs are really using it, and so they're kind of mandating it as a part of a fundraising run. I think you would do something similar here, Sean. Um, I think I think the value would be if you go at the private equity level and you're able to sell kind of the vision of you know you can basically manage your portfolio of all these different cash flowing businesses. I think there's a lot of value there because for a lot of private equity firms, what gets challenging is as you adapt the plans per each of the different companies it gets really dif- difficult to actually track how are distributions flowing in, right? If we're if we're comparing businesses, how are employees in one business compensated versus another? If we're giving distributions back to LPs, right? Versus your, your classic kind of venture LP where you're just getting money at an exit, right? Often you're getting cash flow distributions as an LP of private equity firms. So I think the tooling ends up being a lot more complicated, which may- makes it a lot higher utility. But I think it's a very similar kind of track as what Carta did on the go-to-market side, which is you get, Private equity type businesses; those are going to be the ones where profit sharing ends up being meaningful, and I think you're going to have those folks really kind of buy into this as a as a base infrastructure. So I'd I'd go on the PE side again.
0: It's interesting because for both of these businesses, the customers that you're going after are usually ones that you know VC firms say, "Hey, they're too hard to they're they're too hard to get," or you know, yeah. yeah, So there's an interesting opportunity there. Yeah, maybe why that's the
1: part that's becoming in vogue now. I think the part that's becoming in vogue now is founders are realizing and taking a step back that hey. If I think from first principles, what am I solving for, which is building a business in which I can generate economic value, sure, but I can capture the economic value, right? It turns out, somebody somebody had tweeted this, I think a month ago or so, they said, you know, the most common exit for a startup founder is 30 to 70 million bucks, right? Um, look, that's an unbelievable outcome if you capitalize the business appropriately, right? If you capitalize the business like a normal venture back founder and you have, you know, of your business or 10% of your business and you're exiting for 500 million, you you can make the same economics if you own 80 to 100% of a much, much smaller outcome, right? And I think with AI now, with offshore labor now, with a lot of these, you know, with with a lot of these kind of just underlying tooling pieces, I think founders are seeing a pretty obvious journey to how do you build a business worth 50 to 70 million in five, six, seven years versus, and, and own maybe 75 plus percent of it, versus, you know, can you build another, you know, can you build the next billion dollar company, right? Um, and so I, I think a lot of these ideas that have kind of not been in vogue or not been interesting and kind of been too hard, I think you have to ask yourself, well, who, you know, who was saying it was too hard or who was saying it was not interesting? That the capital allocators, which it makes sense because for their business model, it's not interesting. But for the founder, uh, it's, it's a super interesting business, right? A lot of these businesses are really interesting.
2: That conflict is so big where when you talk, to, if you spend a bunch of time listening to thought leaders, leaders in, in venture who are interesting and, and a lot of these people are my friends and I like them, but they are they're, a lot of businesses that are super interesting to me as a founder are just not interesting to them for that reason. They need billion dollar outcomes. And if you're a fund that has a billion dollar fund, you need multiple Decacorns to make the math work but as a founder, look, if you have a business that's generating $20,000 a month in MRR per customer, right? Like let's take the, the the digital transformation consulting business. If you can make 20K per month per customer, you only need 20ish customers, 20, 23 customers to make 5 million a year in revenue. Now, if that's an underlying services business, it's, you know, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have a much lower um, gross margin on that than if you were a pure software business. Yet still 20 customers, you can get 20 customers. That's not that crazy. It's not
1: crazy. It's not crazy at all, right? So the the math you always have to think through is exactly what you said, Sean, right? You have a hundred million dollar fund. Let's say you want to 3x the fund, get 300 million. Let's say you have five to 10% ownership. If you're lucky in these businesses, you got to produce three to $6 billion of outcomes, right? None of these ideas pass the muster when you say, is it going to contribute to three to $6 billion worth of enterprise value? But can each of these businesses generate $25 million of enterprise value, 50 million of enterprise value? Absolutely. I I also think you're going to start to see a bunch of serial founders that say, hey, I don't need to be the operator for this idea. I'm going to develop my own little holding company and I'm going to spin up 10 of these ideas, 20 of these ideas. And now all of a sudden, you know, 20 ideas that are at 15, 20, 30 million in enterprise value becomes pretty damn interesting, right? So I I think this whole wave of just what AI is enabling now and, and the culture shift of what is in vogue in Silicon Valley now, or the kind of startup mindset, is I think it's going to make a lot of founders a lot richer over the next decade than the past decade, um, and I think it's actually going to generate a lot, a ton of value for just like the mainstream economy. There's always been this parallel of how startups and um, you know this has always kind of been the the argument, right? Of do tech companies actually create just for kind of the tech industry, or do they create for the industry, you know, for the economy at large? I think you're gonna see a massive, massive wave of small teams generating pretty interesting businesses that are really gonna impact the real economy. That That's something that I get really excited about, kind of operating a service business and operating say, in kind of the quote unquote real world every day, is you just see the impact starting to trickle over right into um, into these types of businesses. It's, it's gonna be really interesting.
2: There's something, there's something really funny here. You just mentioned, you know, somebody deciding that they're not gonna operate each of their businesses. I was just reading the Wikipedia page for Jim Justice Who's the the governor of West Virginia, um, and up until recently was the wealthiest person in West Virginia. Um, the, the bar there is it was not that high. Uh, versus you know he'd be like the 50th re- richest person in San Francisco. But he's the CEO of 50 companies. It's amazing. He's like 72 years old. The, the governor of West Virginia, the CEO of 50 companies, and worth somewhere between a half a billion and a billion dollars. And you know he just ground grounded out. He, he's in mining. He's a coal miner. So uh, you know. RIP the, the environment, but it's just a, it's a funny, uh, framing of, you know, having this big, this big portfolio of, of entities that he's the, the operating CEO
0: yeah, of
1: uh, absolutely there's, there's, there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of businesses and a lot of ways to make money. I think that's, that's the main conclusion I've drawn from being in services and, and looking kind of outside tech is you wouldn't believe the amounts of ways that you can generate like outsize and, and, interesting levels of wealth.
0: spend a couple of minutes talking about your approach. Is is it like, hey, invest in frontier tech, you know, companies that uh you know can truly uh be venture scale but incubate service businesses? And how do you think about the incubation or it, 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 talk more about just your, your approach?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it's and, and so I think it's two pieces, right? So one is I think yes, it's it's you know, invest in kind of companies at the frontier, et cetera. There's a lot of fun of chasing big ideas and working with founders that are super ambitious to chase big ideas. You, you know, the two of you know this incredibly well. Um, And I think there's an inspiration and an excitement and a learning that comes from that. Right. Um, if, If we were to backtrack everything I said in the discussion today, there's one part of kind of going for world changing ideas that is absolutely not the case on the services side is, you know, any individual idea has the potential literally to change the world. And there is an excitement and a euphoria and just a learning, right, that comes from being in those types of situations and and in those types of environments. So I I love investing in and backing those types of founders and teams. Um, what I love on kind of the incubating side or the advising side or take or, or buying businesses side, taking a more material stake is more of these service-based businesses. I, I think we're in, I think we're just hitting a really interesting inflection point now with the ability for global labor with the availability for AI to be the underpinning and underlayer for these businesses, that I think if you have a good business idea and you take advantage of AI, offshore labor, and you capitalize it appropriately, you don't need to do the traditional startup analysis on a market and a business. You need to think about it a lot more bottoms up. Sean, you framed it perfectly, which is, can I go get 50 customers that love me? And even if I just got 50 customers that love me, and typically the next question in startup land is, okay, now how do I go get the next 5,000? I would argue that if you stopped there and you did a really great job, right, and you capitalized it appropriately, right, you structured it appropriately, et cetera, it can be a win, right? And so what I get pretty interested and fascinated by is, I think there's a lot of operators and founders out there that for their own lifestyle reasons or their own skill sets, candidly, wanna chase ideas like that as opposed to the former. And so I love the idea of saying, you know, how can, over the next 25 years, how can I partner with 50 to 100 of those types of founders Right, and see all of them make life-changing money and, and build real businesses, and have a ton of fun doing it. And when you stack up, you know, all of them from a portfolio perspective, it ends up being a pretty interesting, you know, pretty interesting outcome. So I, li- I like operating in both spaces. I the the service business that I run by day. I'm constantly inspired and learning from the founders that I'm backing of how do we increase the ambition, increase the appetite, push the metal. And and what I like to think at least, and it's becoming a little bit more involved now, of some of the companies I've invested in is you know, maybe how do we think about some of the financial discipline? How do we root it back to earth? How do we think kind of from business principles? Um, because both, you know, both pieces apply and, and, and are highly valuable in both environments.
0: I want to segue to another business that we've been going back and forth on a little bit, which is the sort of the GLG Tegas space uh, that I'm going back and forth with both of you on. Um, now, I mean, let's just say I, I came to you and said, hey, you know, I, I want to do something in this space. It's an exciting space. I'm talking to people who have some insight on like, wh- you know, where's the opportunity in terms of where to differentiate or uh, how to compete. Um, what if it came to you with something that broad? Why don't you unpack kind of wh- where you're excited about the space wh- and what you would advise me?
1: Yeah, so I, I, my first job out of college was GLG. So I worked at GLG for a year. So I got to see the insights of that business. Um, and man, what an unbelievable business. So they filed their S1, and I think in 21, the company never ended up going public, but it gave kind of an outside look or an inside look rather at how the business actually operates. So I think in 21, GLG was at about 600 million in revenue. I think it was like 70 plus percent gross margin, right? Just a really, really good business, right? Um, and so as, as folks that are listening probably know, right, GLG kind of pioneered this insight network or expert network space, right? Um, two Yale Law guys started the business. They used to work at hedge funds. And their, their big, you know, kind of insight was they created these two, 3,000 page reports and they would go around Wall Street and trying to sell them to hedge funds. And hedge funds would say, hey, great, I don't wanna read any of this stuff, but who is footnote 147, right? Can you connect me with that person? And so what they figured out really quickly was, hey, wait a minute, this is a lot less work and a lot more valuable, right, to customers if we don't actually synthesize the insights, but we just connect folks, right? And so on the backs of this kind of fast forward 20 odd years, they built this, you know, half a billion dollar, just juggernaut. They, you know, of that half, uh, 600 million or so in revenue, I think about two to 300 million was just the hedge fund business, right? And so what they figured out, and I think did a really, really good job of the early years of that business was just focused on one specific target customer that had really, really high, you know, uh, elasticity, right? High price elasticity, uh, because the implications of the decisions were so significant. And then they did a lot of tooling around the edges that made sense for hedge funds that don't really make sense for other people. So in the in the early 2010s, a lot of where GLG separated itself from other competitors that were coming up was compliance. This is something outside in you would never think, like, why does it matter? why is it important, et cetera. There was a lot of insider information actually on other expert networks that completely tanked other expert networks, right? So GLG did a really good job of basically saying, let's let's go work and target this kind of one specific customer. Um, and and then create tooling and create products and features that work really well for them. I think where the model breaks a little bit and why you see somebody like Atiga start to come in is when you expand that to other customer bases, right? So GLG now services like you know the top investment banks, consulting firms, private equity firms, you know, et cetera, et cetera, very natural you know extension of the business. Um, but what you start to hear more and more stories about, I'm sure you guys have heard stories about this too is you talk to a friend and a friend says, hey, I got this inquiry from GLG, Uh, what do you think I should charge? And any of our friends will say, oh, you should charge $2,000 an hour. Somebody will take you up on it, right? And that's exactly what happens now, which is where the opportunity comes for somebody else to come in and say, why why are companies paying $2,000 an hour? If they're paying $2,000 an hour for insights that actually make sense, great. But if they're paying $2,000 an hour for insights that don't require $2,000 an hour, that's a significant amount of margin that's gonna be somebody else's opportunity. So what Tegas did, which I thought was really thoughtful, was they basically said, you know what, if GLG figured out that the 1.0 atomic atomic unit of knowledge in this space was not the research report, but it was the individual, we're actually gonna take this one level further and say it's not the individual in the one phone call, it's actually the aggregated transcripts of a whole bunch of phone calls. Right. And so I can go into Tegas and I can look at the platform. I can look at all these, you know, industry interviews, et cetera, at a much cheaper cost, much more async, right? Get better information because I'm getting more information at a better price. um, And I can use the service. And so what they figured out was they said for a certain use case or for a certain archetype of user, it's much better to be able to sell a product that's not as white glove, but is rather more of an investment grade platform. Right, as opposed to GLG, which was really more of like a white shoe service, right? Um, Antigas is five six years old, I think, approaching 100 million in ARR. Like they've done a really really good job, and they they also actually did a really thoughtful job of focusing specifically on public enterprise software companies. So they also didn't you know go very wide and go very broad. They focused on a very specific vertical where this type of use case or interaction point made a lot of sense. So it's a long winded way of saying I think the business and I think the space I think the space is really interesting. I think you can clearly make really good businesses in this space. I think there's something very clear to learn from both models, right? Which GLG is much more of a white glove, you know, facilitate a phone call, right? Type business model. And Tegas was how do we actually think beyond the phone call, aggregate all the insights and sell it to you like software? So I think if anybody were to take either of these two as a model for either the expert network space and go attack another vertical... Um of which there are like ten GLG spawns started by XGLG people in different geos, different verticals, et cetera. Uh, or we were going to apply this kind of business model to another space. I would have a really good core understanding of the nuance of how both of those guys approached the market because they approached it very, very differently, built really successful businesses, but approached it very differently.
0: That's a fascinating o- overview. Um, just to take that next step, like if 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 you're advising us or you yourself were pursuing it, like, you know, which path might you think is more exciting? Is it like taking it to a different sector or applying that business, you know, T's business model to a different, um, sort of category altogether. Like go, maybe like put a stab in the ground. Like what, what do you think is a concrete op- opportunity out there?
1: Yeah, I think the concrete opportunity is to go really deep on a specific vertical and just like be the best place in the world where if you were coming for, you know, if you were coming for vertical, let's say vertical software, right. all you wanted to look at was a vertical software, right this should be the best place in the world where you can get insights, you can get experts, you can get knowledge, et cetera. I think that's much um, much more palatable uh, versus going geographically based or broad standing based, like targeting a consulting firm or a hedge fund, et cetera. Um, so I would go, if I, was, if I was using this as a playbook and saying I wanted to build something and looked at like the GLG spawns that I think are interesting, I think the ones that have done the best have been the ones that have actually doubled down on an industry or a business. As opposed to a geo or or of wide, right? Because I think what what naturally happens, and, and this is very similar to just like normal vertical SaaS, right? Is you just build a lot of tooling around that specific use case, and so the value is the frequency problem, which is really the problem in most of these businesses. How many times are you going to interact with an expert? You kind of get over the frequency problem, and you can you can obfuscate that with higher price because the value per interaction is just so much higher, right? So I, I would definitely go like at a at a specific business level. Like, I think there's a really good idea that somebody could build around like, again, I know I keep going back to PE, maybe this is just like top of mind in our our business construct, but like PE due diligence, for example, I think somebody could build a really interesting business using this model off the of right? So if you were to outsource due diligence, like the big consulting firms do this, but the, but, you know, they engage with the Blackstones, the KKRs, et cetera, the world that are paying crazy top dollar. If you thought of all the people that are trying to get into business, um, you know, through acquisition, like entrepreneurship through acquisition, or you thought of the lower middle market private equity firms, et cetera, instead of hiring legions of, you know, analysts and so on and so forth, I think you could build a killer product using the same type of playbook around just business due diligence, right? You'd, you'd build an expert network based on, you know, every kind of core of what you think of in a transaction. And you could walk somebody through kind of their like 90 to 120 day kind of process. And, and you take the same Inspiration underpinning of why hedge funds bought from GLG in the first place. There's like no price elasticity because the decision is so important, right? That you want to be handhold uh, or handheld by kind of like a deal doula or a deal shepherd of sorts. Um, I think this that could be that could be a pretty
2: interesting space to attack using this model. Can you, can you double click on, on that diligence? So you just went through a private equity partnership, I'm not sure the exact shape of the thing. Yep. What type of insights are necessary to get through a diligence process? What are they trying to dig out? Yeah.
1: If a venture diligence cycle, especially for early stage is like around narrative, camaraderie, do we like the market, et cetera? Private equity is like a colonoscopy, right? Like you're looking at
2: every
1: <laughs> of the business at like the most detailed, detailed level possible. And so there's there's different work streams and there's different tracks, right? So like you'll have to get a quality of earnings commissioned, right? The private equity firm wants to make sure that like the numbers that you have put through are actually real numbers, right? It's not just looking at your tax returns, it's actually looking at the quality of the earnings that are coming out, right? There's customer diligence, there's employee diligence, there's infrastructure diligence, right? There's legal due diligence, there's financial due diligence. So every element of, you know, having your books buttoned up, having your company buttoned up, et cetera, Um, is is its own work stream and is is its own process. And it's happening quickly, right? It's happening within like 90 to 120 days. That's typically the exclusivity parameter, right? That a private equity firm has when looking at your business. And so I I think that for a lot of first-time buyers, right, especially, or lower middle market that just don't have the resources to do this, there is not a great service today to outsource diligence to. If I was buying businesses, like let's say we went down this path, kind of we were laying out, right? you know, buy or incubate 20, 30, 40 businesses. That's a service that I would love using. You you don't have enough overhead that you wanna, you don't wanna carry the overhead of bringing it internally. You wanna use people that are doing this all day long. They have every element of the of, of the diligence cycle uh, buttoned up, right, and work streamed out. Now, ultimately you don't have to decide, you know, you don't have to take what they're saying at stock, but you should have, a, you know, quality of earnings is a quality of earnings, right? We can have a debate over what the numbers say, whether, you know, you want to pay X price for the company, right? You want to take the risk, so on and so forth. But the actual underlying work is not like a debate. It's it's a math problem, right? It, it's either done properly or it's
2: not done properly.
1: Um, and so I I think I think if you if you had a service that you could actually outsource diligence to, and you could you could find a way, you could I'm sure you could think of like going even down a deeper hole of if you wanted to do really deep, you know marketing diligence or performance marketing diligence, let's say the the backs of this company, let's say whatever company you're looking at, right, the levers that you've analyzed or you've pulled together is for this thing to be a success, it has to do one, two, and three. I'm sure you could sub the diligence out even further to say, you know, do we really believe, can we go get an expert in performance marketing or in lead gen or this or that or so to really take a look at this business and say that, is it possible, you know, for us to pull this lever that we want to pull? Because we're banking the investment thesis with a hypothesis on the backs that we can pull this lever and extract a whole bunch of value out of the company,
2: right? There's something there's something interesting here if we combine. So one of the things about Carta that I find interesting is that they started as a 409A valuation service. Yep. And they took a thing that used to be a big profit pool for law firms yep. and made it software and made it very cheap. Yep. And they then traded that up for the cap table management business. And there's something interesting. I, I'm I'm coming at this as a complete new, but I'm, I'm not an expert, I, I don't know, I don't, even, I don't even know what quality of earnings is, but there's something interesting of saying, well, if a, if a private equity firm comes to you and does this quality of earnings report for you, that could be your very first, very tactical, specific engagement that then feeds into your profit sharing mechanism, because now you're already hooked up into the financials, you know, the way the business works, you're sort of ready to start, you know, doing an ongoing quality of earnings report. I don't know how involved it is, but there, there's something interesting there.
1: Yeah, there definitely is this is so this is the same exact this is basically the playbook that investment banks try to use when they're trying to win business is they'll basically do evaluation for you for free right they'll show you the three different methodologies they use they'll they'll show how they you know they understand the space so well etc and they'll kind of paint the vision for you of this is what you're going to get when you sell right and so i think sean you're 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 hitting on the right hook which is whatever the front end part of the services it needs to be enough of a hook. It kind of goes back to our like digital, you know, automation consulting idea, same thing, is you could find you could you could see an economic way where you say, I'm actually not going to charge for that part of the service at all. I'm going to paint the roadmap out of just how your business is going to generate so much more profit or be so much better run, right? And I'm going to do all that work for free. And then I'm going to be the managed service provider, right, for all the work on the back end side. Right. So I think the diligence thing is is exactly right. You would find some sort of wedge, right, to basically say, this is how you should think about your business, right? Um, You know, I I think the argument to a buyer would basically be, if you, or to a seller would be, if you want to generate an extra, you know, turn of a multiple or so, right, in your process, right, or through your sale, you need to do all these different things. And so the cost is just more than worth, right, the work that's that's coming in. I think the, I think the wedge in actually all these businesses is like, the top part is the commoditized part that there's somebody out there making money on and they're making money on it as a service business. Um, and there's, it's hyper-commoditized, it's hyper-fragmented, et cetera. And if you could consolidate that, templatize it and automate it, right. You can basically just give that out for free and use that as, uh, as a marketing wedge, and then all the higher value downstream stuff is really where you actually want to interact. Totally.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll kind of share with you the two approaches I've been considering for and, and get your quick feedback on it so one is imagine if forbes imagine if forbes went like all out on kind of lists i mean they're pretty big on lists obviously midas list forbes under 30 cloud but it, let, let's say they went all out like across every sector of company um not just cloud 100 but you know, every, every category and then they said okay we're gonna use this list to get all this data on companies like we'll have plausible deniability to ask you know, former employees, customers saying, Hey, we're thinking about putting this company on, on the list. Not sure where they, where they should be, let's ask you a number of questions. Also, you know, they'd go to the investors, of course, and ask about their, their companies, um, companies, and other people's portfolios. And some of that was released publicly on, in terms of lists, and a lot of it was behind a paywall and all the conversations were basically like, I wonder if a media company is a wedge into a potential, um, you know, TICAS or GOG like competitor, because. What do reporters do all day all day long is kind of reference and get intel on on companies and it's highly under monetized at the moment they, they write maybe one profile but if they do like 30 or 40 interviews that would be highly valuable to investors or people looking to join the company or buy the company etc um so what do you think about the, that approach
1: i think the question that i would have is just like how and and this i think like i give credit to tegas too because they broke through on this and i, I haven't used the product in, in a while so i don't know the level of detail that they go into, I think the question mark is like, how do you break the recording barrier and and like the institution uh, and like just the the data capture level, right? So a lot of the stuff that um, you know would go on on GLG calls, right? The experts themselves would say, look, it's it's completely within the compliance bounds, right? Obviously, but it's not something that I want codified and kept in a system somewhere, right? And so I wonder, I wonder with these types of like when you when you take any of these ideas to their logical extreme, which is basically like, can you codify the world's knowledge? And like what's the easiest or like what's the most interesting wedge to getting to this core problem of codifying the world's knowledge? I just wonder what type of knowledge is comfortable being recorded and kept and maintained, versus what type of knowledge is not being comfortable recorded um, and maintained. And I, I think that criteria or that lever is ultimately actually what flexes you towards, do you take the GLG approach or do you take the tedious approach, right? So the GLG approach works, but it's it's because there is a set of information out there that nobody wants recorded and nobody wants, you know, nobody wants the risk of a data leak and their name coming back to, not because it's anything wrong, bad, etc. They just don't want that affinity towards it. And then I think there's a set of information out there that people are gladly able to say, you know what, maybe I don't want my name to it but I'm perfectly fine with the insight being out there and maybe it's anonymized, it's repackaged and it's resold, right? So I think the, the media as a wedge into something like a TGIS or GLG, my, my question mark would just ultimately be, I think you get really interesting data as a, as a journalist or so, and, I, and as a media company. And I totally am on the same lens that it's hyper under monetized, right? It's not like the, the business model doesn't, um, doesn't get nearly close to extracting the value commensurate to the actual information that's there. The question mark in my mind would be like, when you, when you willingly tell everybody that report is on what happens to that information set, right?
0: Totally. Yeah, that's the great insight. I, I said two ideas, but I'm actually going to leave that as a cliffhanger. Uh, we'll have to have you on for a part two, uh, at, at some point, Ramin. And we'll also go through a couple of your, uh, other ideas. I realize, uh, you know, a couple of, we have hard, hard, stops. Um, so Ramin, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing those ideas with us. If you're a talented entrepreneur, um, looking to build in either of those, you'd be lucky to have, uh, Ramin as a potential collaborator. So do, uh, do reach out, uh, Ramin, thanks so much for coming on. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows, along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.